Welcome to Very Honored Frater BT's Esoterra Nerd Podcast, Episode 31, in which I interview Michael Hickey, also known as Indigo Speaker. But first, the real Rosencrantz. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to take a moment to read Nick Farrell's open letter to the Grandmaster of Amwork. Ave, Julie Scott. It is with some concern that I note that your order is issuing cease and desist letters against those esoteric orders using the words Rosicrucian Order. The latest case was the Rosicrucian Order of the Golden Dawn, which has neither the will nor the legal muscle to defend itself. While I accept that your order has the right to trademark its name and its variations, it morally does not have the right to identify itself as the Rosicrucian Order. There are many other Rosicrucian Orders with a pedigree equal to and possibly greater than Amorg. In the historical line of my own group, the term Rosicrucian Order has been part of our secret Second Order work since 1890. Rosicrucianism is based on the reformation of the world through the transformation of the individual. Issuing lawsuits against other Rosicrucian orders who are engaged in the same spiritual reformation is counterproductive to your overall cause and mission. It is isolating you from the allies which give your work meaning. In America particularly, the law courts have been used to shut down important spiritual work conducted by esoteric groups who have the misfortune of sharing similar names. Mysticism and esoteric work should never be about trademarks. In Rosicrucianism, true groups are created by an inner impulse of the secret college, not mortals. To appeal to secular courts to define what is and what is not a Rosicrucian is against what is written in the Fama, where indeed even the profession of oneself as a Rosicrucian is an anathema. Amorc is part of a wider esoteric community. Its position within that community will be damaged if it forgets its role in humanity's spiritual development. I trust that you will reverse your policy using your legal resources to stop people using the phrase Rosicrucian Order in their name before your group becomes part of the problems of the 21st century rather than any solution. Yours, Nick Farrell, Magical Order of the Aura Ore. Well said, Nick Farrell. Our guest tonight... Michael Hickey is a volunteer philosopher like myself. If you go to YouTube and look up Indigo Speaker, you can see his videos in which he talks about Wicca, Golden Dawn, and many other things. I watched one of his videos in which he was letting people know that there are con artists and cult leaders out there operating under the guise of traditional Golden Dawn orders. So I sent him a note and asked if he would like to be a guest on the podcast. So let's get to the interview, shall we? Greetings, Frater. Welcome to the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. Hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? 
Doing great, doing great. I uh, normally ask people about their name. I, of course, uh, you and I both know about Mikhail. Um, me meaning who, k, like or as, and then L being uh, the name of God in Chesed. So, who is like Indeed. God? You know, I had seen a, a much simpler version of that. Uh, Mikhail is something along the lines of uh, defender of God. Interesting. Well, what it was, was the story I heard was it was what he said, because he was kind of the number two. He wasn't really, you know, Lucifer was this, you know, shining angel that everybody yeah, loved. Yeah, the shining great one, and uh, Michael was kind of the uh, soldier little brother. Kind yeah, of didn't really say much. And so then when Lucifer said, oh, well, I'm going to rise up against you, and a third of the angels followed him, the first words out of Mikhail's mouth were Mikhail, which means who is like God, which is a question. It's a rhetorical question and it was a battle cry it was a it was a rallying uh war cry that uh that's why he stands in the south and and protects the temple because he's kind of that archetypal uh passionate uh righteous indignation fire that sometimes we need when we're at the bank and we're being dicked around you know <laughs> you know i actually did not know any of that that does uh make a little bit of sense though with the function I tend to serve every now and again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad to have uh, have been able to to expound upon that. Uh, but uh, can you tell me a little bit about your last name? Ah, my last name is Hickey, and that is an Irish name. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see, descended from the O'Hickeys, who were a clan of healers. And there's a book of the O'Hickeys in the National Museum in Dublin. So I guess the story is that while all the other clans were out slaying one another and fighting for whatever they had to fight about, we tried to put the pieces back together. Nice. So, uh... Is there any connection to the commonly thought of Hickey? You know, I don't know of a connection, though I've often suspected that one of my forebears might have been, I don't know, an infamous gigolo. <laughs> <laughs> or it might have originally uh, been some kind of suction thing that had to do yeah, with draining uh, the uh, a medical out after some kind of insect bite. Right, insect bite. That left a hickey. Uh, left a oh, you've been. I see you've been to the hickeys because you've got a a, a mark of some kind. I don't know, maybe. Interesting. Indeed. Well, you know, and I would imagine the uh, the the manuscript out in Dublin. From what I've heard, it's uh, Latin and. Probably involves a lot of very questionable uh, ideas, leeches for just about everything, I'm sure. So healer and defender of God. And from what, uh, from what little I know of you, uh, I saw a YouTube video just kind of in passing where you were, you were uh, letting people know about the kinds of scams and cult leaders they might run into if they're pursuing Golden Dawn work. And, uh, and you had mentioned being a solo initiate, and I was impressed. And so I, I said, hey, can, can I talk to you on the podcast? So here we are. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, um, for a number of years, I kind of stayed away from Golden Dawn community. When I was uh, quite a bit younger, I'd say 1920, somewhere in there, I mm -hmm. kind of reached out to my local community. I was very fortunate to find a uh, startup temple. Um, a fellow named Skip Duchess, who is not alive anymore, but a group of us kind of gathered around him and we were with the intention of creating a, a new Golden Dawn Temple at the time he was taking classes from Pat Saluski. Hmm. And, you know, 
to me, I've, I have a love of the Golden Dawn material, but something about the the need to have an absolute authority, and it seemed like, you know, my the leader of our group, he had been uh, Adeptus Minor, minor through uh, the Ciceros, I believe, and very powerful person, very wise person, but uh, it seemed like he had a hard time, shall we say, having confidence in what he was doing because he had met someone who he felt like was so much more knowledgeable than he was that it just kind of, it's like it shot his spiritual power down. Right. And I've seen that happen a lot, and I've been subject to that myself. One of the, you know, actually, a guy I'm still very grateful for to this day, um, he was kind of my my guru, my teacher, uh, Wiccan, but... He was maybe 25 years older than me, and over the course of a year, year and a half, really helped me to uh, awaken a lot of abilities. But I found over time that our personal relationship made it very, very difficult for me to have any confidence in who I was or what I was doing and really just continuing to walk my own path. It's like when you meet someone or you find a group of people that have uh, a kind of energy or a kind of power that you haven't been exposed to before, it's very easy to lose yourself in that. Yeah. And if those people or that individual doesn't take it upon themselves to, in a way to validate and reinforce you and to keep you from lowering yourself, there's a big danger in that. Yeah. You know? And from the perspective of the teacher, it's very easy to just kind of glorify and having people look up to you to the point where when you should be telling them, hey, you're every bit as good as me, but you can you can look me in the eyes. We can stand as equals. There can be this huge temptation to cut them down instead yeah. to maintain that that social hierarchy and get to be the person at the top of the pyramid. You what know? was it Jesus said, greater miracles you will do? Or that, that was Yoda. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't remember whether that was Jesus or Yoda, but uh, <laughs> I certainly remember there was a time when, a few times when Jesus would say things like, go out and do these things as I have taught you to do them. Yeah, or, uh, yeah. One of my favorite little vignettes was the one where they're in the boat and the seas are stormy, and they wake him up to get him to calm the seas, and his first response is, oh, ye of little faith. And yeah. People have wondered... You know, I think a common interpretation of that is that he was, uh, you know, angry at them because they didn't have faith in God to carry them across the sea. But my interpretation of that has always been, you know, how little faith do you have? I've taught you so much. Calm the storm, guys. Right. You don't need me. Why did you have to wake me up to do this? Yeah. <laughs> you can do Where's it Where's your, your faith own. in yourselves? Where's your faith in your knowledge? Where's your faith in your power? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, seeing in that. Uh, Gosh, getting back on the internet, and uh, you know, it started with me starting this YouTube channel, which uh, a friend of mine urged me into it, and it really started off very much just uh, almost a video diary, just me working a lot of things out in the form of presentations, but uh started reaching out to broader communities, and I just found that, uh, you know, a lot of the personality issues that the Golden Dawn has been kind of infamous for are continuing to go on. Right. And it doesn't mean every Golden Dawn group is 
involved in them, but, uh, you know, I see advertisements where it's like, uh, you're lost. You don't know who you are. You can't even begin to imagine who and what you really are. And to some of the people hearing that ad, maybe that is correct, but for a lot of people out there to hear that with such authority spoken in them, if they're, you know, open-hearted or in a place of vulnerability, that's almost like a very mild kind of psychological attack. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's the kind of thing that... uh, Fox News does. Yeah, cult leaders are infamous for telling everybody they meet just off the bat without even bothering to learn a thing about the person. You need what I have. Right. You're miserable. You're unhappy. You are lost. You need Scientology. (laughs) Yeah, like Scientology. Yeah. (sighs) And, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like if you're going to be... Adept. If you're going to live a life of being awakened and try to share that with other people, there are easy things to do. One, you can just assume that other people have at least some shred of spiritual awareness within them already, regardless of whether or not it's something they're actively interested in their lives. Right. And as our thoughts are affecting each other back and forth, holding positive assumptions about people, feeding them energy can bring a lot more good out of them than holding negative assumptions about how ignorant and lost they must be. Right. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, give them the benefit of the doubt. And it might not necessarily lead to you always getting recognized for being so cool and knowledgeable, but it will lead to people who interact with you walking away with a much more positive feeling about themselves. Yeah. Yeah, because if you're looking at someone suspiciously, like I remember, I don't know, growing up in the 80s, there was the don't talk to strangers thing and, uh, you know, don't no hitchhiking. And I, I remember, th- you know, hearing yeah. stories about in the 60s when people would hitchhike and and wishing that it, that it was a few decades earlier so that I there wasn't this, oh, you're going to get kidnapped and raped, you know. Yeah, yeah, that, I grew up know. in the 80s too. So I remember yeah, that. I'm, I'm <laughs> but then now with Uber, I, I drive Uber now, so I'm constantly picking up strangers and being picked up by strangers. So it's just yeah. kind of nice to, you know, and with the Internet and, and, and people starting it's to It's a little safer and, for a grown man in person than it is is for, say, that's true. a small, pretty woman, but still that's it's getting much better. less a child, but still. Yeah. I, I feel like there aren't nearly as many uh, real predators out there as we often assume. Right. Yeah, and that was that back to Fox News, like the, the, the encouraging of, of the fear, the paranoia, something happens once somewhere in a sea of 100 million people, and then they repeat it over and over on nightly news so that everybody thinks it's going on on their block. Yeah, yeah, my friend uh, Nico, he likes to call that fear porn. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. people get this intense adrenaline response to it, and it has nothing to do with their real life. Right, like but better than a horror movie. Response. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't watch horror movies personally. But... Not my thing. Yeah. Uh, There's I don't other know, much I noticed more after pleasant a while if I really get into it, weird phenomena will start happening around me and then I'm kind of like okay (laughs) my mind is just drinking in this story and trying to replicate it wonderful yeah exactly 
Yeah, there's so many buttons. It's like the inside of the vault, you know. There's there's a few of those buttons. If you push them at the same time, you get a bunch of cortisol and adrenaline. But if you push these other buttons over here, you get oxytocin, and and you know, I'll, I'll, it's good. So, so yeah, absolutely. it's all about having that mastery and not compulsively, you know, standing in the center in the column in the center rather than kneeling on the ground compulsively pushing some button over and over. Indeed. Well, I had an experience recently that uh, I guess it really cast light on a lot of things for me because I still I'm absolutely in love with the Golden Dawn. I, you know, it's my go-to magical practice, and uh, while I've I certainly experiment with a lot of other things, anytime I'm feeling like okay, I don't know what methodology is going to work, or I don't know where I'm going right now, even the Regardi's book, as much as uh, you know more classically educated people might poo-poo it. Sometimes I flip that open and I find something radical. But Yeah, I still uh, So about a month ago, I went out to a uh, hippie festival. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those are notorious for just being a big drugs and music and sex party. And there certainly is that factor to that's it. But good that's good conversations, not why I went out though. Yeah, yeah. Um. You know, I went out there because I was seeking community. I was feeling kind of lonely, spending too much time communicating with people on the Internet, not enough in person. I just decided to go. Yeah. And uh, standing at a drum circle, and I saw this old guy who was dressed up in a pretty cool wizard costume, and I decided to follow him. And I ended up in a, a yurt. Hmm. Uh, there were probably a dozen of us sitting in a circle, and... The interesting thing that happened was it was kind of awkward at first, but, you know, the people who had gathered together there were all fairly spiritually aware people, and we just started talking and kind of opening up to communication, and there seemed to be this unspoken rule of just everybody being supportive and nobody being negative. Yeah. And the magical energy that just started to awaken in this group of complete strangers and uh, the old fella who owned the yurt, he and his wife were there, but all they had to say was, you know, we're not here to create the magic. We just hold the space, and people come and create the magic. Mm. You know, we don't need to make it happen. You guys make it happen. And what I found was in that just assumption of mutual positivity and respect and that assumption of brotherhood and sisterhood and that assumption that you're sitting in a circle of enlightened ones and you don't need anybody to prove themselves that that magical raising of energy happens so effortlessly. Yeah. And that's something that I've found a lot of groups have a huge amount of trouble with. Yes. This difficulty even engaging in ritual of getting the energy to open up and getting the energy to awaken and you know, people can go through initiations and not feel any awakening, or groups can try a ritual many, many, many different ways. And one way, of course, to get the energy to awaken is to have a very authoritative person saying, this is exactly how it's done, and if everybody believes that 100% and they pull it off exactly that way, they can finally allow themselves to bring out that magic. Yeah. But... The, the opposite way of doing that, kind of the, the yin to that yang, 
is to do away with the rules and assume that the magic is coming out to begin with. You know? Yeah. And it, there are downsides to it. There's, there's a big downside to that. Um, you know, as far as you'll have people not learning, you'll have people who are engaging in dysfunctional lifestyle choices that never get called out on it because no one has the courage to tell them a truth that they don't want to hear. There but if they're, if they're being honest with themselves and yeah. they're accurately perceiving, you know, down the road when they're pathworking the, the, the moon card, when they self-initiate into philosophists, if they're real honest with themselves, they're going to have to, they're going to have to write it in their journal and then read it later and say, wow, that is something I need to address. You know, Indeed. these, these demons, you know, these internal. Indeed. Yeah. 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 The whole, uh, the madness of the kilopot is definitely, uh, yeah. A challenge that it can help to have some community to get you through. I, uh, I was reminded, I don't know. The thing that flashed to mind was that, uh, I had a dream once cause I, I was always my big obsession. My dad's big obsession really was astral projection and, and mastering all that, you know? And mm. so, so that was where I started out. And so I was doing some dream work and I was practicing flying, uh, you know, and, and, um, and so yeah. I, I met up with some friends, and when I said, hey, we're dreaming, and they said, oh, you're right, and we all three were flying. And I flew higher and with more confidence than I've ever flown before. And when I woke up, I, they were there, and I said, hey, you guys, were, were you just flying in a dream? And they were like, no. And that was, so I realized firmly that, uh, that if I felt like I had friends with me, then my confidence went up. And it had nothing to do with whether or not I actually had friends with me. And it was the same kind of affirmation that I had when I was hypnotized once when I was 14. And the hypnotist said to my subconscious mind, can you clear out the, you know, my nose was stuffed. And he asked, Yo, do you have any requests? And I said, yeah, could you unclog my nose? And uh, so then the subconscious mind through my fingers said, yes, I can do that. And he said, will you do it now? And, and my fingers said, yes. And then it unclogged as if, my, as if on some level my brain knew how to dissolve snot into thin air. So between that experience and between the flying experience, I started to kind of like tap into it. It was almost as if it were a muscle. It's like the muscle of, it's almost, it's almost a leap of faith, but, but through those experiences I was able to have something tangible that if I trick myself into thinking that the archangels are with me, for instance, if we're all five chanting the names of God, and then I'm really rocking the house here, you know, even if I'm alone. And, uh, and I think that a good, you know, honest solo practitioner can, can arrive at those states, you know, that, uh, that we usually think that you can only arrive at in a cult. But, of course, then there's the huge drawback of you have this deep emotional tie to a, a place that has a rent due and then you have the cancellarius calling you and saying, Hey, you know, I know you got that extra money from your grandma. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, we need uh, $2,000 or we're all going to drown. And, and so-and-so the homeless guy is living in the office as you know, and he'll have no place to go. <laughs> and you're just like, Oh, Oh, okay. You know, I owe it to my own spiritual path to uh, empty out my bank account and not be able to pay for my kid's education later. And uh, that's, that's what, that's what, you know, the main thing that, 
that I that it, one of the main things that motivates me to like want to get this information out there and let people know what's going on out there and that that the solo path is a viable option, you know. Because I know well, people yeah, like you and I feel and, like honestly, I'm jealous of people who have a uh, highly functional, great working order. Uh, for myself, the closest I have is a, a coven of witches that we have been getting together for the last ten years or so. And, yeah. You know, it's wonderful. It is yeah. wonderful. But yeah. there are times when it would be nice to have more people who are comfortable using the same set of tools. You right. Know? And more people who are dedicated to pulling off some of the more complex elements of ritual. Yeah. Um, I just feel like that can be done in a way that's not so fixated on a sense of genuine hierarchy. I mean, there's a need for hierarchy within any human organization. Right. You know, when humans come together to accomplish something, especially something that's going to take We can't all money, play Macbeth. Time. Uh, Someone's got to be the servant. Someone's got to be, in order yeah. to put on a play, you know. Yeah. you, you gotta Somebody's got to be the characters. Servant. Yeah. But we can draw a big difference between, okay, we've chosen this person to lead us and to define what we're doing today so we don't go a hundred different directions. Right. Uh, we've chosen this one person who is going to define it for everybody. Or for six months, the Hierophant for six months or whatever. Yeah. And everybody gets a turn. Everybody gets a turn. Yeah. And we can differentiate between you're the Hierophant now versus you are actually existing within a higher Sephiroth that the others are not existing within. Right. Yeah, to be real. Be real. And, yeah, there are differences. There there are levels of attainment that happen that haven't happened for some people. So yeah. there has to be a balance between being honest about you haven't attained as much as you could at this point in time. You have these imbalances that are not treating you well versus just a constant reiteration of, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. I'm there. That's why I'm the one speaking to you. You're yeah. not there yet. Yeah, and, and you know, dues are due tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the money thing is always a big challenge. Yeah, you when know? that gets tied into my authority, you, I must maintain my authority, because then it's a matter of when you when you end up with an inner order and an outer order, then you have the inner, inner group within the inner order that has to... Uh, save face on behalf of the leaders or on behalf of whoever in order to convince the rest of the inner order that they should all, you know, speak with one voice so that the outer order can be duped into thinking. And honestly, St. Francis, as much as I like aspects of St. Francis, I liked that movie in the 70s with the Donovan soundtrack, but he also encouraged the church to lie in order to cover up corruption. He said that there shouldn't be corruption, but if there is corruption, make sure nobody knows about it because it's very important to people to have this idea of an immaculate church there. To, and that's hideous. Yeah, it's hideous, you know? exactly. And maybe it served a purpose in medieval Europe, but this isn't medieval Europe anymore. All the thing is, I honestly feel like the best candidates for membership in an order are not going to be the people that expect the adepts to all be perfect, Yeah, you know? Um, I think there can be a huge fear from people who do want to be the leader, who do want to be the teacher, who are honestly well-suited to it, maybe even people who want to make a living teaching. Right. They feel like if they just come out and say, hey, 
I will devote my life to teaching as many people as want to learn. I would need you to pay me for that so that I can devote my time and effort to that. They feel like people are just going to hate them. And so instead of coming out with honesty, honestly, this is what I'm doing. And honestly, I'm not a perfect human being. And honestly, whatever skills I have attained, sometimes they don't work. Sometimes my magic goes awry. Right. Being afraid to say that and plastering over that with lies is wrong. It's kind of the proof of what hasn't been attained. Yeah. You know, we imagine we like to mythologize. We like to have uh, a perfect person to look up to. And, you know, if you want a perfect person to look up to, pick Jesus or pick Hermes Trismegistus. Or Superman or something. Yeah. Or Superman, you know. But when you're looking at a real life... Your own higher self, your own guru, your own inner guru, or your your motto that is supposed to guide you, not, not, you know, define you and say, walk around and say, I am leader of the... No, that's that's a guide. You're supposed to become that one day. Well, and that that gives you better students, too. That gives you better people coming to your order because they're not coming because you're making a promise that's not real. Right. You know, if you do these rituals and you attain this grade, then this is what you will be, and it's just going to be amazing and perfect, and everything in your life will be solved, every personal frailty you have will be gone. People who believe that sales pitch are not necessarily the people who are going to be great long-term members of a fraternity. Right. You know, and that's why you see so many broken lineages. Uh, You can follow them from you know, I'm not going to name names or call people out right now, but I've observed in several, even some who I look at the people in them and I'm like, huh, I respect that person. That person's a scholar. Oh, and their student turned against them, and then their student turned against them, and you've got one, two, three lodges with one, two, three different order names because every time someone came to a point of empowerment, they felt like they had to turn against their teacher. Right. You know? And maybe they felt like they were right to do it because their teacher had sold them on a bill of goods. It wasn't entirely accurate, but then they turn around and sell that same bill of goods to the people coming after them. And just a raw measure of honesty, rather than seeking out people who are so desperately unhappy that they're ready to believe anything, seek out the people who are more discriminating, the people who aren't going to believe it the people who are going to question it, and the people who, even if they continue to acknowledge you as their leader, even if they continue to pay dues to the inner order to keep it going and appreciate what the inner order does for them, the people who aren't going to believe that you're a perfected human being are the people who are still going to be there as your friend in 15 years. Yeah, fellow travelers. Yeah, fellow travelers. A lot of this started because of Freemasonry and because it all seems to originate in Britain during a time when it was the British Empire. Right. You know, there's a very imperial sense to a lot of the, the social rules that have come down. Yeah. And uh, Yeah, and in a way it was in a way of inoculating against the brainwashing of the royals. I mean, because it used to just be a traveling circus that had come to town and say, we're the king, give us your taxes. But then eventually it evolved into what it is now. And so then in Mather's Day, 
you know, they were saying, ah, but let us actually build the empire of light, you know, and, and you go in and there's a throne and there's someone with a wand and, and you're interacting with the royalty. And so you're kind of unscrambling the programming that's been imposed upon you in your own brain. Although now we have, <laughs> we have the, we have a different form of government, but, uh, you know, it's sort of, a lot of it's still kind of the same old bullshit. And there are a lot of people still trapped into the need to have a perfect mommy or a perfect daddy figure. Yeah. You know, when I look at, say, the the whole debacle with the cipher manuscripts and where did that really come from and why weren't they honest about that, given the time period, I can see why they weren't honest about it. Yeah. You know, given the time period, if they had come out and said, hey, a uh, couple older masons had just died, left this thing behind, that a few of them seem to have probably written themselves, and <laughs> we think it's awesome and we fleshed it out, and we would love to share this with everybody. People wouldn't have been as interested. It had to be wouldn't some mysterious thing that was passed all the way down. So they may have even intentionally translated it into that chicken scratch found in the old polygraphia just so people would have to dig up the polygraphia and say, ah, we're translating it using this thing from the 15th century, you know. Yeah. Have you ever picked up uh, uh, Secrets of the Golden Dawn Cipher Manuscript by uh, Polk Runyon? I have it, yes. Yeah, uh, I found the the history laid out there very interesting. And uh, kind of the assertion that he made was that, uh, who was it? Uh, Kenneth McKenzie and Frederick Hockley uh, with a small group of their friends. And they, they knew Elias Levi and a few other big names at the time. Mm-hmm. Kind of the assertion that Runyon tries to make is that these guys all came together and created the cipher manuscript themselves and that it was probably one of their students who took it from plain English and put it in cipher. Right. Um, and William Westcott was kind of like a, a young friend to uh, Kenneth McKenzie. Um, but they, McKenzie, Hockley, this whole group were very influential in the creation of uh, Societas Rosicruciana at Anglia. Anyway, so it wasn't until after Mackenzie died that uh, Westcott was able to get this cipher manuscript from a box that he had gotten from Mackenzie's widow. Frederick Hockley probably had been initiated into a Masonic Rosicrucianism in Europe. Uh, there is some record of him having received some kind of Rosicrucian initiation, but given the time period, I would guess that that was an offbeat form of masonry. Right. Because the Masons were creating new orders right and left. So you yeah. could have gotten initiated into a Rosicrucian order. It was really a Masonic order. Right. But anyway, so they have all this knowledge. They, they're well-placed in society. They have access to a lot of old manuscripts. Um, you know, they they are known to one another. They're kind of the leading lights as far as occultism in that age. And they want to create a new Rosicrucian order. And... They didn't pull it off before they died. You know, they tried, but it didn't come out the way they wanted to. Yeah. And then William Westcott finds this manuscript, and he gets together with uh, Dr. Woodman and their young friend, McGregor Mathers, and they decide they're going to make this thing happen. Yeah. And I guess for some reason they didn't feel like it was good enough to say that our old friend's put this thing together and we fleshed it out because yeah. it had to be more ancient than that. But 
the idea that a handful of people could have come together and created something like the Golden Dawn, when you look at all of its complexity and all the various streams of knowledge brought together in it, it's a pretty impressive feat in its own right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, I don't there's think some it really... necessarily needs the, uh, the secret ancient and forever story. Right. Well, it's like Edward Kelly. Was he really channeling from this other really, really, really organized and sophisticated world their language with all its grammatical? Or was he the Tolkien of his day? Was he just a highly functional, like Rain Man or something, where he was able to put together all these patterns, and even though they were asking out of order, it all turned out consistent? I mean, that. Or could that even could that have been? possibly faked by Dee and Kelly together because something that uh, I found out, uh, gosh, I should never have sold this book, but uh, one of these limited editions came out. It was just called the Sigillum de Ameth, Mm -hmm. and it spelled out how the uh, the Sigillum de Ameth, all these lines of names surrounding it, like every piece of that sigil, was created geometrically based on the Hebrew archangel names. Hmm. The letters didn't just come in out English, of air. You take, uh, <laughs> in, Michael, in... Raphael, Gabriel, right. uh, basically your seven planetary archangels, and you write the letters in such a way that you get a square of seven by seven, so it's 49 letters. Right. And you apply a few patterns to them, and then following the patterns, write that into all the spaces in the sigil, you get the exact sigil that the angel supposedly told Dean Kelly to create. Hmm. I was like, well, I mean, it was kind of a work of genius. You could have just told yeah. people how you did it. Yeah. Well, there's this guy, I forget his name. I want to look it up, but uh, he, he does this art in New York where it's just this incredibly sophisticated, intricate stuff that just, I mean, when, when you look at someone like that, it, it, it doesn't, it's not that much of a surprise that someone could have put together, you know, these, these old religions or these old, you know, they maybe one person, you know, masterminded these different things. It's, uh, it's not unheard of. And it, it might very well be the most impressive thing in the universe. We don't know. I mean, you know, it yeah. is when a human being is able well, to create an entire. Well, my experience like trying to evoke angels from the Enochian system tends to produce some very, very interesting phenomena. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Regardless of whether, uh, you know, the archangel Raphael came and authoritatively told them that this is it, or whether they figured out a way of reconstituting the human language to evoke unseen powers. In either case, it works. Yeah. Well, the English language has power. You can do a spell in English, or you can eliminate a word from your vocabulary and notice a manifest, you know, a a clear thing. So it's no surprise that if you introduce this new language whose sole purpose is to work on the inner planes, then it's going to have power, especially over time when people add to it and, and work with it and exchange notes on it and all of that. I mean, yeah, I've seen yeah. some people flip their lids because of the when you combine it with a certain kind of fundamentalist, creepy form of Christianity, and then you have you know Enochian there at the same time, then you get you get people kind of blowing fuses. It's uh, yeah, certain things aren't meant, wires aren't meant to be crossed. <laughs> yeah, well, there's certainly uh, the the human tendency toward paranoia just seems to get exacerbated anytime you bring 
magic into it because we can't de- decide how much of it is subjective versus how much of it is objective. Right. And I think being afraid to test that just contributes to the paranoia. Hmm. You know? Yeah, that's um, true. Something I've found is that it can be very difficult for people to be really honest about the outcomes of their spells because we all want to remember all the times that it worked, and we yeah. don't want to remember the disappointments when it didn't. And we like to look on people's faces when we tell them stories of our magical successes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But we'd never want to talk about, you know, the dozens and dozens and dozens <laughs> of times that we went to this great effort and then nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, my my big lesson in that one was uh, not related specifically to Golden Dawn, but I bit off on that whole uh, law of attraction, the secret thing for a minute. Yeah. And uh, some, a couple of times it was very, very uh, effective, but I was like, all right, well, I, if I, it's all about being able to control your thoughts. I'm going to control my thoughts and emotions to grant myself a winning lotto ticket and use all those resources to go do some amazing things in life. Yeah. And man, did I beat my head bloody against that one. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It helps to work within one circle of control, like, you know, actual sphere of influence. Cause you can do a, a lot if you, you know, just put your energy within the, within the realm of what you can do, then what you yeah. can do increases. But if you put all your energy into what, what you can't control, then you when what your actual influence is. Well, I'm, I'm quoting Stephen Covey, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's that diagram of the circle of influence and the circle of concern. Indeed, indeed. I, I agree. I think I haven't uh, read his book particularly, but, uh, yeah, when you do focus on what you can influence, it's impressive enough. You don't have to be the uh, mythological godman controlling everything. Right. You know, you don't have to negate the willpower of other human beings. You don't yeah. have to do any of that. Yeah, and it's rude anyway. You know, It's extremely rude. Yeah, <laughs> it's that whole golden rule thing. Indeed. Well, that's something, uh, I guess, with that whole, like, what you can influence and what you can't influence, but also putting things to the test, I... Yeah, I had a really interesting experience, uh, not in a very awesome way, but a couple friends we brought together. We did meetup.com, and we brought together a meetup group for uh, mediumship, trying to speak the spirits of those who have passed on. Mm -hmm. And something I noticed that I've seen this in other occult contexts, but uh, something I noticed was that people started arguing with each other about who was seeing what or who was hearing what and what was there and what wasn't there. Hmm. And it really just funked everybody up. Yeah. You know, because people were putting a huge amount of their emotional self-worth into whether or not their particular little blip of whatever they think they heard was objectively real or not. Yeah. They're, they're, the measure of self-worth put into that was so strongly, was so strong. So much of their self-worth was in the need to have this spirit communication be real that the other medium sitting across the way from them not seeing that and seeing something different just ruined them emotionally. 
Wow. And so I think that's where the, the virtue of humility is really, really, really important. Yeah. Uh, you know, in magical working groups, too, you know, when we're talking about whether it's communicating with a spirit, communicating with an angel that we've evoked, or uh, just the simple sensation of whether or not the energy is raising, you know, being willing to be ruthlessly honest about that and not have to get caught up in groupthink and not having to seek agreement, not yeah. having to have the one authority who dictates what's really going on while everybody else tries to get their perceptions into alignment with that. Yeah. You know, we want it to be this amazing experience where, yeah, everything, everyone experienced the exact same thing and it was amazing, and that's how we know it's real, that can happen. That really can happen. But when we get our egos involved in it, when we uh, want that to happen so badly that we're not willing to acknowledge the obvious what's really going on, when we're not willing to cut out, like, no one's in charge of this. No one gets to dictate what everybody's supposed to see. Yeah. When we cut all of that out, yeah, we'll have a lot more disappointing experiences, but the flip side is that the experiences which really do line up and everyone really is on the same page, you don't have to have a question in the back of your mind as to whether or not we were all just playing follow the leader. Right. You know? I was uh, listening to a, a TED Talk podcast recently about open source as an idea. Hmm. And yeah. uh, one of the points that was made was that when it uh, came to science, you know, of course, uh, in the 1600s with the advent of what later became known as the scientific journal, people were able to keep up on each other's progress and, and uh, reproduce each other's experiments and confirm or, or, or change the, you know, uh, what they were learning. Um, but when it, <laughs> they were talking about that in present day with programming and with Linux and, and uh, a lot of these things, but when it came to writing fiction uh that it, it it became much more cumbersome and the result was uh was not as good so i think that uh that's kind of an interesting parallel to what we're talking about cuz i think that maybe um <clears throat> if everybody's looking into a showstone and uh saying what 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 they see it's a little like everybody writing fiction together a little um it can be or i yeah. think if you are honest about what you are seeing and aren't seeing and don't get wrapped up in it, that honesty is the only way you're even going to be able to tell the difference between whether you're writing fiction or whether you're dealing with something objective. And that's yeah. something that I see a lot of people get caught up in the idea that magic is somehow fictional and that it's purely within your mind. It's a purely subjective experience. And then the flip side is people who want it to be objective, so they get into the group think and they get into the the, the self-modification and the negative emotion to get everyone to agree to something so they can believe it's objective. In either case, they're not experiencing objective magic. Right. On the one hand, they're they're limiting themselves to something that's purely subjective. It's all in your head. And on the other hand, you're taking something that's all in your head and trying to pretend it's objective and hiding from any possible test that could be put to it. You know, if you put the test to it, though, again and again and again, you weed out the subjective elements. You weed out 
the 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 parts that are all in your head. I mean, and by weed them out, it doesn't mean they stop existing. It just means you're aware of what they are. Right. And eventually, you do find objective phenomena, things that are outside of yourself, and you know it because other people see it the same way you do, even if they're not people that you even know that well, or people that have any interest in supporting whatever fantasies you might have about yourself. Right. You know, I feel that magic and science are very deeply tied into each other, and magic has a lot to learn from science. Yeah. Well, and in a way, I mean, science grew out of what we now call magic. I mean, alchemy, they just took the owl off. And, uh, you know. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It did grow out of magic. And, you know, there's something I've battled with for a long time. Uh, as far as the feeling that when science first came about, it seems like a lot of the most intelligent people ditched magic and moved on to science and felt like, why would we even waste our time on magic when we have something so much more provably real here? Right. But... You know, they threw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. You know, there were things from the old approaches that genuinely did need to go away. Yeah. But there, there, there is an objectivity to it, and I'm just asserting that. Who am I? <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, who am I? You don't have to believe me. Well, I think but that's I'm, I'm pretty strongly convinced that if people put a certain amount of rational intellectual cut on their magical experiences if they apply a little bit of Occam's razor. You know, the idea of the simplest explanation is the most likely. And stop being afraid of logic and stop being afraid of being asked to prove it, even if it's only to themselves, but also to other people they do the work with. It's not as exciting as, oh, it's easy it's just like harry potter like you're a wizard now (laughs) you know it's not that easy there can be a lot more disappointment along the way but there is real gold there you know i like to um when i'm teaching um i like to if in in that example like uh what i would rather do rather than have everybody you know say oh what do you see do you see it oh you know, if you see something different, I would say, okay, we're going to invoke this angel. This is what he looks like. He's standing over here. We're all going to call on his name 20 times or whatever. Um, yeah. And, uh, and then once, once he's there, I don't, I'm not into saying, do you feel it? I just assume that everybody feels it because we're putting it there. I mean, whether, yeah. whether, whether, I mean, cause it sounds like I'm saying it's all in your head, but on the other hand, you know, in Genesis, uh, we're all in the image of God. And when we say before me, Raphael, Raphael shows up because we're speaking with that same authority because we have real tape authority. And the whole process of telling everyone what we're creating together is a way of bringing everybody's mind together so that you don't have different willpowers fighting over what does or doesn't get to manifest here. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then from there, then you can then you have communication, then you have shared reality, then you have a shared experience, and then people can have their own experience 
from there, and I think what, what the beauty of something like book tea, the idea of book tea, after working with path working, you know, going into the universe card, going into the judgment card, yeah. working with all these archetypes for so long, I started to think of book tea not as a book as much as it is a realm within the astral plane uh, where, where when you go there, you, everybody is a union archetype from a particular egregore. And so you discover certain truths and you can have a shared reality in the golden dawn egregore and then everybody's kind of seeing similar things but if you have someone from a completely different egregore who was trained in like a native american school or or voodoo or something like that and you're both looking into the same black mirror i think there should be some allowances for differences of course because there's more than well certainly and i think there uh can even be allowance for the fact that you know we're not Generally speaking, most of the time we're not seeing these things as clearly as if it were a physical object with with the naked eye. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, You have one person who's actually looking with their eye, trying to see an image in the mirror, and you have another person who's squinting and just seeing what pops into their mind, and you have another person who's like going beyond that, and and they've been practicing for years and they're really tapping in, and so you get three different (laughs) things. Yeah, well, that's something that we found uh, this uh, Halloween with our our witchcraft group. We decided to do a uh, little call-out to any spirits of the dead who might want to come around. And out of the, what, six or seven of us who were there, uh, and we started, we tried using black mirrors and bowls of water and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, One of of the guys had... uh, like started remote viewing with the black mirror, no, uh, no spirit contact. So he kind of discovered something else than what he was looking for. But, um, a couple of us were able to see one spirit show up, not in the mirror at all. And it was by talking to each other, like, you know, is that thing standing next to your right shoulder right now? Yeah. Cause that's what I think is going on. Right. And just being willing to add the what I think is going on. Yeah. And it doesn't invalidate the practice at all. It doesn't necessarily have to break everybody's, uh, the unity of the energy. So I have my own project underway. Um, Probably it's slated to open up uh, in January, but it's going to be an all online school uh, new curriculum that I've been putting together for the past, I mean, ultimately for the past like 15 years, but focused in its current format for the past like eight, nine months. And the the thing I keep beating my head against is the idea of charging money for it. Right. Because, you know, uh, on the one hand, when you put yourself out there to the general public and say, hey, whoever wants to learn, come to me, you, you get a lot of emails and a lot of people want to talk on the phone or they want to do Skype. They, you, you can spend all day, every day teaching people. Yeah. And so, and I would love nothing more than to spend all day, every day. Yeah. If I had the time and the money and, you know, I didn't have other things I also wanted to put energy into. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. But, uh, yeah, the charging money thing, I, I guess my 
way of excusing myself for it is to, you know, have options for people who don't have money to still jump in on it and be ruthlessly honest about the fact that any of this that I can teach you, you can learn without me. So you're really just paying for somebody's time to tutor you. Right. Paying pay for laziness. What it is. Yeah. Paying paying to have someone else do it for you. You know, like the same reason yeah. we pay for delivery. It's it's hard to be a solo, you know, initiate. It's hard to be a self-initiate. You know, it's not for everyone. It is. Well, uh, for me, I think, uh, I don't know. I had been practicing kind of a mixture, like half, uh, more than half. But uh, I'd been practicing from when I was a teenager, Wicca, and then kind of the solitary Golden Dawn style of magic. And uh, as well as some, like, Eastern meditative disciplines. And nice. kind of gone wavered through all three of those and made decent progress on the uh, Golden Dawn side when I met a guy who became my teacher. And the interesting thing is he was uh, like and not a ceremonialist. I mean, hearing him try to use Kabbalah as a language to explain his thoughts is a little frustrating. But <laughs> <laughs> the thing I found is that having that one-on-one connection, having someone that I could just go and talk to him for a couple of hours and practice magic with, and it helps me awaken my senses in ways that I hadn't been able to pull off alone. Yeah. Doesn't mean I couldn't have, but, you know, I was fortunate in that regard. I was trained in Gardneri and Wicca when I was 15 and 16, and uh, Hmm. my my mom and I both, and uh, wanted to really delve kind of deeper into it because we started to look into its origins with Crowley and Gerald Gardner and yeah. realized that it was all kind of based on, you know, the Watchtower op- the opening and the Golden Dawn, which is how I ended yeah. up with the Golden Dawn, was in researching deeper levels of Wicca. Yeah, it was kind of a similar idea for me. Uh, I Somehow I was absolutely incapable of finding any coven to train me as a teenager. I think I was just way too loud and confident for a bunch of women in their 40s to put up with me. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, I got, oh, yeah, I can relate with that. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, Don Craig's book, Modern Magic, The Infamous Modern Magic. Um, I read that a couple times through, and I'd read a few dozen Llewellyn witchcraft books and uh, started feeling like, okay, this Golden Dawn is where I find the explanation of the symbolism that I find in Wicca. And then that kind of segued into, you know, that modern magic book kind of became my central textbook that led to reading dozens and dozens of others. But, uh, yeah, it's always, you fun know, to at tell. a certain point in time, I started feeling like I was a little maxed out on it. And, uh, like I really wanted someone to come and show me something that I couldn't figure out on my own. And so I got, lucky and found this old guy, you know, nice. who, you know, he, he didn't charge me any money. He got his price out of me other ways, but yeah. So there's, there's, there's that feeling I have that, yeah, having a teacher can be very, very helpful, Yeah, but it's not necessary. And I've met people who without any teacher or initiatory anything, have vibrant, powerful spirituality, you know? Yeah. One guy I met who 
one of the few people I've seen bend the laws of physics multiple times in ways that were just so outside of normal that I have to question whether or not I even remember it correctly, but it was so many times, and he had no teacher at all. Hmm. He uh, had been in the Army. He was out in Iraq, and I guess just spontaneously out there began realizing the nature of reality, so they sent him home with a psychiatric discharge. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he... I saw him on one occasion levitate. He didn't even know he was doing it. Hmm. We had just we had stopped at this little uh, stone and crystal shop, and they had like a temple room. So we went and sat in chairs in there, meditating with crystals. And like five minutes into it, I wasn't feeling it. I opened my eyes and I looked over, and his butt was probably a good four inches above the arm of the chair, hmm. normal sitting position. I was like, "Hey, man!" And he sank, and he opened his eyes, and he's like, "What?" And I was like, "You were levitating." And he's like. That's really weird. I felt like I was trying to. <laughs> he didn't even acknowledge that it had happened. Wow. And he's someone who, like, abjectly ignorant of a lot of things. You know, hearing him try to explain astrology was like hearing a, a televangelist try to explain the theory of evolution. <laughs> and yet, he every once in a while would come out with a level of ability that was so radical I've never matched anything like it, you know? Hmm. Wow. Yeah, you have I, to I, such a I don't know what to attribute that to. Fluke of nature. Yeah, wow. What a trip. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel community is important. It is. We're social creatures. We like to connect. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that yeah, my uh, my old friend Gordon, well, he was quoting, I believe, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, and I forget which mm. book it was, but how, it was someone who was talking about a character that was talking about how everybody has their their carass and their the grand falloon, and the mm. car, the carass is kind of your people, the people that naturally come together that you don't have to even question that you know that. Uh, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you're one of us, you know. Um, but yeah. then there, there's the grand saloon where everybody puts on an, an outfit and goes to the cotillion and, you know, is prim and proper and, and, and waits their turn and there's a hierarchy. And, and uh, so, you know, yeah, that's, that's when people think community and <laughs> they think, you know, the grand saloon. But, uh, but I think that when it's the caress, you know, we all just kind of find each other. And I think that's one good thing about what's happening with the Internet is, is uh, geographic distance isn't as much of an uh, obstacle as it used to be when, uh, when yeah. we had to write letters that may or may not arrive and, you know, may or may not get read by the church. And then we get ourselves. Yeah, and hopefully you're <laughs> still living in the same place by the time someone decides to reply. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. that's good. Yeah, no, I mean, I do think there is a big purpose to the the Grand Saloon. Yeah, you need it. both. I mean, yeah. It is nice to participate in something bigger than yourself. It's not just you and your friends deciding what you want to do tonight. Right. Yeah, and to have the contrast between both, you know, to be able yeah. to, you, you need to go to work in order to go out and have a drink, you know, on uh, for happy hour, in order for that to make sense, you know. Yeah, yeah, and going out to happy hour is no replacement for going to a masquerade any more than going to a masquerade is a replacement for happy hour. Right. Yeah, it's all in in the preference and the aesthetic. 
I tend to think of it as like the stones in the wall on the sun card that, uh, that on a certain level, when you get into your, your, uh, your right consciousness, your solar consciousness, kind of the resh, the front of the head, and uh, yeah. and you realize that everything is a ray that extends out from that true self, and each of those rocks is a different permutation of the zodiac that results in oh a bad mood, a sour mood, a good mood, a pleasurable mood, oh wild sex over here, and then over there it's horrible, and and it's just every different possible manifestation laid out there for for us sparks of the divine light to experience in this mortal realm. And yeah, in a way, it's, it's beautiful uh, even with the ugliness. Halfway write your own adventure, halfway the adventure's been written for you. Yeah. Yeah, just the right amount, the interactive. Everything they're, they're, they're trying to, to imitate with uh, interactive, you know, these days. Try to create yeah. a virtual One, world. Something I've often thought about, I'm not a video gamer myself, but I've, I've certainly observed people playing World of Warcraft. And I feel like, in a way, our, our real lives are kind of like World of Warcraft. It's yeah. not a bad analogy as far as there's this real you that chooses to engage in this artificial created world with all these rules that only matter within that artificially created world. Right. And you can get so into it that you forget that you're choosing to be there. Yeah. And then you can pull back out of it. You know? Physical reality has a little more gravity to it than uh, World of Warcraft does. Not quite as easy to pull your head out. Right. Yeah. But it's voluntary. And but this the whole grid. matrix, this, this yeah. thing that we can have so many complaints about, Yeah. a lot of the things that aren't voluntary are, are not voluntary on an individual level, like negating the law of gravity. Uh, you believe that as much as you want. Good luck. Right. But... Collectively, we agree to it. Collectively, it's part of a structure that gives us a format for interacting with each other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I feel like a big part of where our spiritual evolution is, maybe not collectively for the whole species, but certainly for a lot of us, is getting into the programming layers. Yeah. Figuring out a little bit at a time how much can we change it before... It doesn't serve the purpose we want it to serve. Yes, you know, some, to be and, the ultimate God who's in control of everything. Oh, hey, there's lucid dreaming, but right. who do you interact with in that? How do you get to know that which is outside of yourself in this little matrix that you're in complete control of? You know, the giving up of control when we incarnate is what allows us to experience something other than self. And as miserable as that can be and as much as people can uh, feel this desperate need to ascend and get out of it all, I, I think it's important for us to remember that, you know, we didn't get trapped here or it isn't some kind of hideous punishment for us. We bought the ticket. It's, it's something that exists for us. Yeah. We bought the ticket for the roller coaster ride knowing there was a drop at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's still just a ride. Yeah. There's a, a, a guy who is an older Japanese man who, I guess he's the 62nd patriarch of the Soto Zen lineage, one of them. And um, hmm. and he does his zazen and his yoga every morning, whether whether there's someone there with him or not. And uh, huh. so if you if you go there, then you can 
partake with him. And uh, one of my old teachers, Gordon, who passed away last year, he he had a similar character in his life, and he would always point to that as the example of um, how to run a temple. Is if you're doing the practice, you just let people join you if they want, and then you have a temple, and it's magic, and it's real. Indeed. You you know, it's not put on. It's not uh oh, there's people coming over. Let's put on a play. It's oh, good, there's people to join us for this activity we are already doing. And if it's not that, then do something else because, you know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I... Uh, hmm. uh, well, is there anything you want to, um, before we wrap up? Uh, well, uh, I'd like to thank you for inviting me to come do this podcast chat with you. It has been enlightening. Absolutely. Um, thank you for coming on. I have a, I guess if I had to wrap it up, I would say I have a deep-seated appreciation for uh, the people that created the Golden Dawn and the people who have published it and the people who continue to be out there in many ways improving it just by getting more into the depths of it. Yeah. And I also feel like it has a lot to offer to the broader metaphysical community. And the one thing, the only thing I would change is to let everyone who is involved in it do it with a little more laughter and a little bit less of a furrowed brow. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the Esoteric Nerd Podcast, brother. Thank you for inviting me, brother. It has been an honor and a pleasure. Likewise. All right. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Michael, or Mikhail. By the way, as some of you know, I'm a stickler for pronunciation, and Mikhail is the correct pronunciation. Mikhail? No, that's, that's not Mikhail. It's a hard calf. Not a het. Not a hay. Calf. Try that in your next LDRP. You might seem a little more in focus than usual. Thank you all for tuning in. Tomorrow morning, I will be interviewing Merrick Hayman. He is the premonstrator of a traditional Golden Dawn temple here in the Los Angeles area as well as the current organist in the Culver City Fauché Lodge number 467, FMAM. Looking forward to that interview. Until then, Merry Meet, Merry Part, and Merry Meet Again. Huzzah. Good night.